Cool. Um, I think I reached out to you a while ago, didn't I? Yeah, and it feels just, like about, about, about a month ago now. Really? I feel like it was longer ago, but maybe you were on my list. <laughs> yeah. I think it was about a month, month and a half ago, maybe two months ago at this point. Who knows? Time flies at this point in time. Yeah, and I've always meant to, like, I want to have someone that's been in, like, the cooking part of the industry. Mm-hmm. Like, I was always out front, right? Yeah. I think I flipped pizzas for BPs for maybe, like, eight months. <laughs> and uh, they liked me, so they moved me out front, right? So yeah. I just want to kind of talk to a kitchen person and get their perspective and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one that I was kind of curious about, and I always had my opinion of it, and you've worked for franchises. Yeah. And you've worked for, like, the independent people. And um, I'm just kind of curious what your feeling is. Like, where would you rather be? Myself, personally, I am all independence at this point. Like, for everybody, it depends upon where you're at in your life, what you're looking to do. And, you know, do you want to be the creative chef or do you want to make a living cooking? It's. It doesn't really go as much hand-in-hand as you want it to be. Like, franchises, they offer that stability. They usually pay a little bit better, especially when you get higher up into the management structure. There's benefits and such. With the independence, you're going to get more of that passion, more of the creativity. Doesn't always quite pay as well, but... I don't know. Nowadays, it seems like the franchises, they're realizing in order to keep people, you got to give them that little bit extra. So a lot of places are actually attempting to pay a little bit more and to offer those, you know, even if it's just, you know, partial dental and medical and stuff like that. It, it, it all depends upon the person, really. Myself, I'm more of the passionate, creative type. I, I did the franchise for a very long time, and I don't have a lot... A lot of negative things to say about it. You you don't really have a lot of creativity, but you know it's still a job. It's still everybody still works together. You still develop relationships and everything. But for me personally, I don't think I could ever go back to a franchise. Yeah, like I get, especially the franchise stuff. Like I said, I came from BPs, right? It's like the printer goes, and it's almost like you're working in a factory. Yeah, it's like the dough comes down, the sauce comes on, the cheese goes, and it's just there's it's it's very much a production. Yeah. Like, I liked it because, like, we were at Moxie's also, right? And it's like, mm. when it's that busy, you learn how to just put your head down and, like, go, right? Oh, for sure. It's, especially in a place like, like you said, you and I, work, we worked at Moxie's. I was there for six years. And I was, I was the assistant kitchen manager or sous chef, depending depending on how you want to say it. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's it's very much production. We we had what 260 seats in that place? Yeah, it was overkill. Oh god, you fill up and it's you're doing more sales in an hour than most restaurants would do in a night. The amount of food you put out is insanity. Like you really the one thing franchises and I say this for any young cooks who ever try and get into the industry Go somewhere. It doesn't really matter where you start out, especially if you're wanting to go to a franchise. You will learn speed and efficiency. You may not have the most, be making the most creative food out there, and it may not be the most inspiring work, but you're going to learn efficiency. You're going to learn speed, and you're going to learn how to work under pressure. 
Yeah, totally. And I just, I remember like, especially with that place, right? Like when you're doing a $2,000 Friday lunch, that's more than some places do in an <laughs> evening, right? And those are like 2007 numbers. So I'm sure it's even more ridiculous now, right? Oh God, that was a long time ago. Um, do you find, because I've noticed a lot of the newer trends, like your OJs and your Brown social houses, um, they're making smaller rooms. Um, do you think that is it like, I feel like they're throwing away revenue, but they're also making it that the kitchen can flow better. I really don't think that you're throwing away revenue. I think personally speaking that I think restaurants need to be smaller because it's going to allow for your number one, your service is going to be better because your servers have a smaller section. They're a little bit more attentive and they can deliver that experience to the guests from a kitchen side of it. It allows you that little extra, even a minute, and believe me, in a kitchen, an extra minute means an hour to some people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It allows you to put that little extra effort, that little bit of extra care into the dish. Even if it's a franchise restaurant, you still want to put that care into it. You want to still, still want to put that effort into it. So when you, are, when you have a smaller franchise restaurant, I guess the best example, even though it's the quote-unquote dive bar, Leopold's, they're small places. And yes, the food is not very... No. It, it is what it is. It's dive bar food. But when it's a smaller room, you don't have as much going on at once. You can actually put a little bit more into what you're what you're making put a little love sure into it. yeah, for yeah sure. there's there's a little bit of extra love or integrity or whatever you may call it no and i've noticed that it, i totally forgot about that like between vix and leopold's that's the same guy right mm-hmm. and um i think it's brilliant um you keep the kitchen from crashing plus i like the intimate pub feel like it I don't know if that came from the European vibe or whatever. Like, I like the way the room is set up. I like the way the whole yeah. shtick goes, right? Um, I also enjoy the one Vix downtown. Doesn't it have the ragged-ass barbershop right above it? So it's yeah, kind of... Yeah, the Vix there. And yeah, upstairs you've got ragged-ass barbers and they're just a bunch of guys and women who are cutting hair and it's it just screams trendy right like it seems like they're it it does it's it's combination of trendy and old school barbering techniques married with new school barbering techniques like you walk in there and you ask for a haircut that came from the 60s or 70s and i guarantee you every single one of them who works in there knows how to do that cut you ask for the i guess the trendy word nowadays is a fade or stuff like that and every single one of them is up to date on the newest techniques of doing that as well yeah i just found that like it was right during kind of like when the word hipster was a bad word (laughs) but like i just found that pairing because it was like this old school like cool hip like barbershop you don't hit no one said barbershop for like 20 years right it was uncool right it was all hair salons and just the pairing of that and then like this cool like small pub atmosphere right like i like it um i just think not crashing a kitchen is a huge deal right oh for sure you crash a kitchen and everyone's just focused on just getting food out regardless of how it how it looks or how it Case or anything like that. When you crash a kitchen, it's oh my god, I gotta get it. I gotta get through this. I gotta get through this. Less than, all right, let's taste this. Let's taste that. Make sure it's good. You know, it, it's it's yeah, it's smaller restaurants. 
you don't bring in as much revenue, but I think you get a better quality product. No, I totally agree with that. Um, do you think that the high stress environment of some places can run people off? Oh, for sure. Like you really have to be able to work under work under pressure. There's a lot of stress that comes with restaurants. It's I've been doing it now for 16, 17 years and I'm only in my early 30s and I've I've seen I've worked with thousands of people at this point and yeah, you have to be able to work under pressure. It's very stressful at times. There are nights where it's easy there, you're flowing, there's no stress, and then you get a Friday, Saturday night where you're doing 150, 200 people in an hour, and it's like, yeah. oh dear God. <laughs> <laughs> As this conversation goes on, I still don't miss it at all. <laughs> no, and it's like, on the good point, it feels good to like put your head down and just go, right? Yeah. But like I said, it has that factory mentality to it at some point, and the creativity goes out the window. And I've worked from everywhere from like a Boston pizza in your moxies where it's like there is no room for creative juices, right? And it's just, it's a factory. It's like they take the order, the printer goes, and then it fires off to all the stations, whether it's the salads or the steaks or whatever, right? Yeah. And you just go. And um, that's kind of why I wanted to talk to you because you seem to have a lot more independent experience than I did. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I was kind of curious, like, how much creativity are you allowed when you're working in some of these places? Depends upon who you're working for. It That's the thing with independence is uh, it depends upon the chef. It depends upon the restaurant. I, I've, I left Moxie's now about seven years ago. And before Moxie's, I had worked at uh, the Willow on Wascana. Oh, right. Okay. Which at that time, mind you, this has got to be... Let me see. 14 years ago. So I was a very fresh-faced young kid out of culinary school. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the Willow at the time was the high-end restaurant. And they're, I still think they're one of the better restaurants in the city, you know, t- 10, 15 years down the road. But back then it was, uh, you had Mo Matthew was the executive chef. And you had Dan Taylor, who was the head chef. They now... Mo now runs the cafeteria at Luther, and Dan Taylor owns Industrial Park Cafe now. But back then, it was, they created the menu, everybody else executed it, but it was, you had your input. It was, well, chef, what if I did this or this with this dish? Would that make it better? And it was very collaborative. It was, you didn't shoot anything down unless it was the stupidest idea ever. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, with the independence, it really depends on who you work for. Um, so, like, myself personally, I feel like I made some really good choices on chefs that I worked with after Moxie's. I worked at uh, Flip Eatery and Drink, mm-hmm. where I was the sous chef for three years. And to be honest with me, that was the happiest time I've ever had in my, in my life. In I ran into you there when I went for lunch once, and you yep. looked very happy behind the counter. Open kitchen, so you don't get a lot of that... Uh, you have to watch what you say. So it it takes a different person again to work in that kind of place because, you know, a lot of restaurants, it's the frat house locker room mentality, which I personally am so over. I can't stand conversations where every joke has got to be about, pardon my French, dick or ass. I 
this this is rated R. You can talk all you oh. want. <laughs> <laughs> oh joy! <laughs> yeah, I did two podcasts as PG, and I was like, I yeah, fuck. Oh it. <laughs> god, who the fuck wants to do that? <laughs> well, no, because then there's editing involved too, right? So I was just like, yeah. whatever, right? Yeah, for me personally, like I think restaurants nowadays, especially well, all restaurants personally, but especially the independents, the whole locker room talk, the whole bad boy chef, the whole let's fucking grab each other's asses and talk about dick jokes all day i'm just, it doesn't exist anymore okay it, now you're making me miss it no, just sorry sorry bro <laughs> <laughs> but that to me that doesn't exist anymore because it's not conductive to a healthy environment you're you're alienating so many more people nowadays who could be incredible employees for your company at flip that's what i love number one you're in an open kitchen so you can't say that kind of shit you could you could swear under your breath and nobody would bat an eyelash, but yeah. you, you you couldn't do that kind of stuff. And it flip was such an inclusive place. You know, you had this one woman. Oh, Alice was her name. Uh, she's this tall Jamaican woman. Even though she's younger than all of us, she was Mama. It was Mama <laughs> Alice. The most sassiest, sarcastic human being in the world. You had Chef Dave, who's this quiet, unassuming chef owner who's incredibly talented. You had a really good friend of mine from high school who was our baker and prep cook, who's the most odd human being you've ever met in your life, and probably the saltiest human being you've ever met. You had this eclectic group of people who would never in a hundred years hang out together at all, working under this one roof, and everybody got along because everybody respected each other. There wasn't bullshit jokes and offensive crap. Like, you can still throw the odd joke here and there. It doesn't... It is what it is. It's never going to wholly leave restaurants, but at Flip, it was just a community. Everybody yeah. got together. Everybody collaborated on dishes. Everybody worked together. Yeah. How often did the menu rotate there? Oh, God. Probably four times a year we would change the menu. That's all right. And then there was room for everyone's kind of interpretation of things. Exactly. And there were daily specials and all that. But it was a very seasonal restaurant. Like, we had the farmer's market, obviously, right down the alley on Scar Street. So we really relied upon that for a lot of stuff. We developed relationships with uh, local and fresh which in the last couple of years has gotten a little bit bigger there for anyone who doesn't know what local and fresh is. It's uh, it's kind of like your Cisco or GFS, but it's all locally run. All the products they get are from big and small local companies and farms and suppliers throughout Saskatchewan, some in Manitoba because they do. There are some Manitoba companies that do cheese. <laughs> Don't mind me. Yeah. There are some mantle companies that do cheese, so they supply a lot of that. And so we would get a lot of product through them. So it was very much trying to be as local and as sustainable as it is both feasible and financially responsible, yeah. which is the biggest challenge nowadays. And I remember you talked about the willow, right? And one of the first things that stuck out to me was that I should turn my phone off, but... um, <laughs> um <laughs> They always and they. I feel like they were one of the first ones. Like everything was local. Like they would use like Saskatchewan things in a lot of their recipes. Um, the beer they brought in was all from breweries that were local and stuff like that. And I felt like they were kind of ahead of the curve because now it's becoming a trend. Like especially with the organic movement, right? But like 
I just enjoyed the fact that they were like, this is from Saskatchewan and we're using this bird from here and the grains from this farm go mm-hmm. to the bread. And it felt like it was really kind of ahead of the... Oh, for sure. They were they're one of the first places to really kind of do it um, on a finer scale, too. Because there always have been restaurants in Regina that have done it. Uh, a good example is Bushwhacker. They've been around for 25 plus years. And they do feature, whenever possible, local products on their menu uh one of the big ones is boar you don't really see a lot of boar on a lot of uh, menus here but boar is actually quite readily available in saskatchewan there are at least to my knowledge three farms that oh, really? uh, oh yeah um the biggest one being uh, golden prairie boar and they're kind of interesting in the fact that their boar are literally well not literally sorry but they're quite wild they just have big fences along their property, and the boars literally just run wild in the in the woods around their property. And then they, they still have the feed and all that kind of stuff of a traditional farm, but they don't have paddocks where they the boars are confined all day. They run wild like crazy, and boars are very much hard pigs to domesticate in the big game in the yeah. first place. No, that's cool. Like the free range concept is another one that I think has come around lately, especially mm-hmm. with like in the egg industry it's like you can buy a dozen eggs from wherever but it could be chickens that are completely just pinned down in a coop and forced to like poop out eggs all day but then the yolks are barely like the yellow is just a little bit more tinted than it's pale yeah it's just pale yellow and the ones i buy are like they're from saskatchewan i can't remember what the company is but it's like a free range egg and they're these big brown eggs and the yolk is like orange it's dark orange and you really notice the difference in the flavor it's and that's the other thing too there are multiple benefits that come with the whole free range um animals chickens is the best example because they're the easiest to do um number one it's the quality of the product you're getting you notice it the second you crack open that egg yolk it's it's rich it's full of flavor it's got color the other thing, though, too, is the environmental impact. You know, a lot of a lot is made nowadays on commercial feedlots and commercial farms, and the amount of uh, CO two that they produce, and the amount of water and resources that goes into creating. Everyone likes to say creating that one pound per price of product, and it really is not a very good thing the meat doesn't taste as good the amount of co2 especially in today's world with climate change and everything is so disastrous for the environment and the flavor just sucks like you get a steak from a cow that's been raised on uh even a mostly grass-fed diet because it is financially and realistically very hard to do an all-grass diet unless you have a vast plains that are very rich in nutrients and stuff like that but you get a grass-fed steak you notice immediately just from the first bite the the flavor difference generally with grass-fed you're going to get a little bit more chewiness with the beef because the animals worked the animals exercised they moved around yeah but with exercise comes flavor i don't think a lot of people understand that In today's society, we value a product based upon its tenderness and not its flavor. And that, to me, is a devastating thing. Because 
when you value tenderness, so animals that aren't exercised, animals that aren't happy, who are force-fed grain, and they don't have a great lifestyle. But then you go buy their tenderloin, which to me is the worst steak possible because there's no fat, and fat is flavor. Mm-hmm. It's just tender. You can cut. You can cut it with a fork or a spoon. What kind of steak is that? No, I totally agree. Um, in the fall, for the first time, I split a quarter of a cow with somebody. Yeah, and it fills a deep freeze, right? But like, oh, sure. Um, I was just used to the grocery store meat, right? Where it's yeah. like it's in your fridge for a day and it starts turning gray, yeah. which is creepy, right? No now in retrospect, <laughs> but it's what you if that's all you buy, that's all you know, right? Exactly. And so like. In the morning when I would leave for work, I would throw either steak or ground or something in my sink, go home. When I come home, it's thawed, I cook. And it would still be this, like, vibrant, bright red meat, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just things you don't think of, right? Just the cow got to wander around. He got to graze. He got to... Uh, A cow that that can live off its proper diet, which is grass. You know, they're herbivores. Grass, the exercise, it develops... A type of fat. It's an intramuscular fat. So you see a lot of steaks and you see it a lot in pork where you get that big strip of fat on the outside of the meat. That's a grain fed animal generally. When you see the striations of fat, what, what, what you call marbling throughout the meat, that's generally a very happy animal that's lived a good life and you're going to get better flavor because when you cook that meat, the fat melts, but it doesn't melt out of the meat because it's inside the meat, so it melts into the meat, and you get better flavor, you get better texture. Overall, it's just better, not just for you to eat, but overall to the farmer, to the land, to, once again, the environment. It all goes very much in hand. Like Agriculture is one of the biggest producers of pollution nowadays like when i and when i say that i'm talking more or less like big feedlots confined spaces the more commercial industrial farming yeah yeah um yeah i remember what was i listening to and just the way that it's just kind of the like we talk about production lines with people right like just this production line of like a cow comes in whoop kill it cut it up send it out yeah after it's been pinned against other animals for god knows who how long um people talk about antibiotics too right like being pumped into animals and what it's doing to us and we don't even know right now for me i i'm divided on that because first of all my uncle and cousin they are farmers i grew up with their beef my entire childhood And it was great beef. I didn't really like the butcher they hired to cut their meat because he cut it too thin, personally. But but they used antibiotics when necessary. I don't think it is necessarily a horrible thing. The problem with when you speak about antibiotics, like obviously growth hormones I'm totally against. But when it comes to antibiotics, when you normally hear about that it's in the industrial business where cows are not properly fed they're fed nothing but grain they don't get exercise and so they get sick because they're not being raised properly that's the issue whereas you go to say like my cousin's farm where it's just out by edenwald it's 45 minute drive from regina 
His cows have all the room in the world to move around. He feeds them on a on a diet of mostly hay that they grow and everything. They get to feed on the grass in their surrounding area, and he bulks it out with grain. So when a cow gets sick there, it's an actual, that cow is sick, <coughs> just like you or me. It it's not, it. yeah, it's, they're already sick, you're treating their illness. It's not like, pump them full of it ahead of time. Exactly, you're treating the actual illness. By the time it actually goes to uh, slaughter, there's no issue anymore, because there are r- rules and regulations. When was this cow sick? How is it treated? How long has it been since treatment, and has that cow been ch- been checked by a veterinarian since then? You know, there are rules in place and regulations where you, if that cow was sick, say, I, I don't know all the rules personally, but say it was three months ago, that cow was sick. Is it healthy now? Are there any more antibiotics in the system? No. Then yes, that cow can be slaughtered. You're not going to have any antibiotics entering your body through this whole process because there are rules in place a lot of people don't understand that they don't they see an ad on facebook or instagram or they see they see the little excerpts they don't actually take the time to read into something and research it they go oh god they're using antibiotics and that i can't support that whatsoever it's so bad for you and everything and (laughs) i go well no you're not getting all the information a lot of people nowadays are so quick to form an opinion just based upon little excerpts or little paragraphs of information and they don't get the whole story you need to you need to educate yourself not just for yourself but your children or your friends if you have friends who are and when i say the word ignorant i mean they don't have the information i don't mean that they're idiots or assholes or anything like that i mean they're ignorant to the information if they're ignorant you who have done the research can educate them and then it spreads from there and it spreads from there and you get more people who are educated on the proper processes of farming and raising animals and you can make better decisions when you're buying food and support more local farmers who are doing proper farming and overall it just it's better for everyone yeah it just is cool how much did <laughs> sorry i kind of know a, a little deep in that <laughs> <laughs> that's fine um how did being a butcher change your view on anything well that was the cool part was so when i got to flip eater and drink they also were starting up another business called uh salt food boutique now what salt food boutique was everyone thought it was a deli butcher type thing but really what it was is we were doing old school european cured meats so we were taking a lot of the old school stuff and it was mostly pork based because that's what most charcuterie and cured meats and salumi is is pork based so we were getting in you you get in a bone in pork shoulder bone it out grind it up make sausage sell it to a customer but then we were starting to get into the old school, and especially this comes more from the Italian side, was cured meats. So when you're curing something, you are adding salt, sugar, and nitrate to it. And I realized in today's day and world, nitrate is a scary word, you know, because it relates to cancer. Let's face it, everything gives you cancer at this point in time. As long as you're eating stuff in moderation, it's fine. Um, so what you do is you grind your meat up. You're adding your seasonings, 
So a good example would be like, I do a sausage called cacciatorini. And cacciatorini in Italian is an Italian hunter's sausage. So it's pork that's ground up. You add red wine, chilies, salt, garlic. And then you add, and I mean it is literally 2 to 3% of the weight of the animal. You add in curing salts. Sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> it's it's a Wookiee. <laughs> um, it's literally 2 to 3 Sometimes four or five percent of curing salts. It's very minimal amount. And what the curing salts and the salt do with the pork is it draws out moisture. And that's how you inhibit bacterial growth. Bacteria needs moisture to grow. Salt and curing salt helps to pull that moisture out. So it, it doesn't allow bacteria to grow. Now, when you're curing meats, you want bacteria. You want the good bacteria. So there's good and bad bacteria. We we couldn't have stuff like yogurt and cheese and cured meats without good bacteria. Plain and simple, it would not beer. Beer wouldn't exist without good bacterial growth. It it's defining the difference between the two and it's learning as you go. So we would ferment like you would beer or wine where you're fermenting yeast. What we would do is you would Hang at a room temperature, and you would allow the wild bacteria in the air to adhere to the meat and grow. Now, for safety reasons, we added a bacterial starter culture, which is full of the good bacteria that we're trying to encourage to grow. So it gave it that leg up on the bad bacteria. So the bad bacteria couldn't grow because the good bacteria grows. And then once you have that fermentation, it would take anywhere from a day to I've hung meats at room temperature for a week. And I've had health inspectors look at me like, what the fuck are you doing? And <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, I've done my research. I've tested it. I've actually been federally inspected for this kind of stuff so that I could sell to because I remember when Salt Boutique was at its highest I was selling to the Sask Hotel through Local and Fresh I was selling them all this cured meat and I was federally inspected so it was all safe they took product they tested it and all that kind of stuff and then once it's fermented you stick it in a cooler generally you want 3-4 degrees Celsius but then humidity comes into play too because that's very important um, you want 60-70% to 70% humidity because you're now drying the sausage you're allowing the excess moisture to evaporate which further inhibits the growth of bacteria hence why something like prosciutto you buy prosciutto at the store that's 2 years old in some cases the fact that it hasn't gone bad is because it's been allowed to dry. It's been salted to pull out the moisture and allowed to dry. So bacteria can't grow on it because there's no water. So for a lot of our products, they didn't take that long. It was, you know, a couple of weeks up to a few months. So, but the humidity levels, if it's the humidity is too high, your product doesn't dry and then it rots. If it's too low, the outside of your product dries but the inside doesn't dry at a similar rate so the inside actually starts to rot it's actually very there's a science to it it, there is very much a science to it you have to like i would buy thermometers that would measure both temperature and humidity in the air 
say a little bit about that. No, that's... Um, but, but that kind of led into... Sorry, I guess the original thought process here was butchery. <laughs> no, that's super cool, right? Like, I remember seeing it pop up that you had switched into being a butcher, and I thought that was cool, right? And, like, yeah. even when you're talking about some of these techniques that are pretty old school and been Fairy. around probably for hundreds of years, right? Like, how many people are still, like doing these old techniques right like butcher shops don't exist as much as they did when we were growing up right most butcher shops nowadays don't do cured meats they'll make bacon because bacon's ridiculously easy to make i could make bacon at my house in my fridge it's it's so easy but old school european cured meats charcuterie salumi when we were coming up yeah that didn't exist now not so much in Regina, but you are seeing a uh, huge renaissance, if you would if you would say that, where restaurants have full on charcuterie programs. Like you look in Regina, um, Crave Restaurant and Bar, John Thalberger, the chef there, who's a f- friend of mine and who I think is one of the best chefs in this city. He does a lot of uh, sausage and cured meats and pâtés and terrines and all that kind of stuff that a lot of chefs don't even know how to make nowadays because it had fallen so far out of favor because it's so labor-intensive. Um, you look at the restaurant where I work now, Avenue, I have a full-on uh, program going where I have at least 100 pounds of meat hanging in my cooler at all times. Like right now in my cooler, I've got... Uh, and a lot of people don't know the names, so I'm going to say this. I've got Calabrese. Um, I've got Guanciale. I've got Copa. i got Lanzino. I've got all these different kinds of meats hanging in my fridge. And, it, yeah, you go to any big city now, you're going to even see businesses that are built around cured meats. That's cool. And it's really, it is very cool to see because they're very responsible about what they're doing. They use, they bring in whole animals, they break them down because every part of the animal has a different type of cured meat you can make from it. Every single one of them. So it is true whole, whole animal butchery. Nothing goes to waste. See, yeah, and like you haven't heard of thought processes like that probably since like depression time where you used every piece of the animal, right? And that's where that comes from. If you look back on some of the most revered cuisine out there, it has come from poverty. You, The best example is French cuisine. You look at French cuisine, you've got coco vin, you've got beef bourguignon, you've got uh, cassoulet. These are all things that are made from the tougher meats. You know, coco van is chicken braised in red wine with bacon and mushrooms and onions. But you took the old, the old cock, the male chicken. It's tough. It's old. It's not a chicken breast that you throw on the grill and it's tender as shit yeah. and you just eat it. You have to treat it a certain way. You have to cook it low and slow with, and it, it came from the Burgundy region of France. So you have the burgundy red wines you have mushrooms that are everywhere there you have bacon bacon is so ubiquitous sorry (laughs) um everybody makes bacon and you just cook it all together uh cassoulet is another big thing um duck confit duck confit started as a preservation technique you know we are going to cook these legs of duck in its own fat and it's 
we put it in our cold store room in the basement and it's going to keep for a few months so that that helps feed you throughout the winter nowadays duck confit is this thought of high-end or in the pantheon of higher-end foods and really a lot of this stuff comes from peasant food the best cuisine we have nowadays is from peasant food it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, I know you're, you've mentioned it a few times with culinary school, and that's kind of one of the things I jotted down was right. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is young and they want to dive in, is culinary school always the first best step? <sighs> to be honest, once again, it goes back to it depends upon the person, really. Like, I did school. I went to the... It was SIAS, now it's Sask Polytech. Yeah. It'll always be sias to me. <laughs> um, I did the culinary program in Musha. Now it was a one-year apprenticeship program, and there are definitely they teach you a lot of the basics. Which for me, it it was fifty-fifty because I was eighteen. I had already been in the industry for four years. I knew probably half of what they did. The high school I went to, Winston Noel, had a fully set up kitchen, so there was a lot I learned there already. So for me personally, it was eh. It, it taught me a little bit, but a lot I already knew. It, it it seemed back then, and you got to keep in mind, this is 15 years ago. I'm sure the program is much different now. But it seemed more geared towards producing, quote-unquote, cafeteria workers than actual chefs. So it really depends on where you go to school. Um, the best I would recommend, there's the school out in PEI. Um, and then there, I can't remember the name of it. And then in Victoria, there's the Pacific Culinary Institute and uh, SAIT in Edmonton. Uh, those three, if anybody ever thinks about going to culinary school, those are the ones I recommend because you're getting an actual culinary education rather than, you know, outdated old school stuff that really doesn't apply to today's cooking. Uh, yeah, and like... I remember when I worked at BP's and like, that's probably still my favorite owner of all time because he had an open policy that anyone that worked in the kitchen, if they continued working there, he would pay for them to go through the SIAS program. That's cool. And so, and sadly, it's like lots tried, but none. Because once again, you're in 1990s, early 2000 restaurant industry, right? So I can work my shift, go to Syast, or I can stay after and have beer. And like, I watched a lot of people try it, but the fact that, because he was a chef, the owner. Yeah. And so I believe he's a chef. Yeah. And, um, and he worked his way up through like keg earls and then he owned the BPs. Right. But yeah, he had that open invitation and he wanted others. Like if you had that passion, right. Like, and then, so if you did go the route, like I'm going to go get a job in a kitchen, he opened that door. Like maybe you couldn't afford it. Like who knows what the, the ways to go are but yeah i've always kind of wondered like what they actually teach you if it's just like mm-hmm. here's your measuring cup today we're baking bread kind of basics or yeah sias was definitely uh very much the basics more than anything for me there was uh once again this is early 2000s there's a lot of burnt out chefs who are kind of just doing it more for a job rather than educating people i had one one culinary instructor who, who was more concerned about going outside and getting stoned with some of the students rather than actually like 
cooking. Not to say anything negative about the actual SIAS program itself. It's more of the the people who are working it. Um, and it's curriculum driven, right? Like you have to teach what they say they're going to teach. Exactly. So. There's not a lot of deviation. And then once again, the the kitchen there served the students. So you weren't really doing a lot of inspired. Whereas when you go to these actual culinary institutes that are more driven towards today's uh, culinary students and chefs, you know, you're going to learn a lot more like, my first six months at the Willow, I, I went there straight out of SIAS. I learned more in six months there than I did in the entire year I was at SIAS. You know, you, it, it depends upon the person. I personally, for myself, if you're on the prairies and can't afford to move to Vancouver or Edmonton or PEI to go take these classes, because they are expensive. I think the Pacific Culinary Institute's got to be fifteen grand a year. Holy. It's, it's not cheap. Go find a good restaurant to work at. Even if it's just an entry-level position where you're not doing a ton, you're going to learn through osmosis. You learn by watching everybody around you. And eventually as you get better, you move up, you do a little bit more, you do a little bit more. Your career is going to take off quicker than if you went to culinary school and you come out and you adhere to the rules a little bit more because in, in, in food outside of health and sanitation rules are rules are not set in stone there are so many ways to go about making different things as long as you have the same product at the end yeah um the places i've worked at where i've noticed where they had a good success rate with their guys it seemed that they would like like you said start in an introductory position so like start as the prep cook yeah. And then you're coming in, so now you're preparing all the ingredients, you're seeing what's going into everything, and then maybe you're helping with the lunch rush, and you're kind of getting, working on the smaller, not as intricate things, right? Yeah. And then you work your way up to, like, so... Line cook. Yeah, right? Like, yeah. you don't start with steaks, because that's the <laughs> that's high... That's the big boy. Yeah, right? Like In the franchises, you, that's the big boy. They don't want you fucking up a steak, right? So, yeah, it sucks when you start, but yeah, you'll either be like prepping or like salad desserts something that yeah it's like nuke plated or whatever it is right and go right and like but yeah if you show competency then you work your way up right oh that's what i love about the independence since i left moxie's i haven't used the microwave since since then because you said the word nuke there and it just popped <laughs> in my head and i was like yep not a single place i've worked in has a mi- i don't even own a microwave at home which kind of sucks when you want popcorn when you're a little bit drunk. <laughs> <laughs> or to rewarm the drunk Big Mac. Um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have one for years. And it was all the years that I was in the restaurant industry. I never... It was just... You reheat it, right? Or whatever. <laughs> but now it's like single dad on the run. I Finally, when I moved in here, right, on my own, I got a microwave. Because it's just like... Yeah. think Shit needs to get heated up in two minutes. You don't have the time oh, to... Oh, for sure. Like... It's actually kind of cool because there are uses for the microwave. If you watch a lot of TV shows, like I highly recommend, like I really hate a lot of TV shows. I highly recommend Mind of a Chef. Easily one of the best cerebral shows you'll ever watch. It really, it deals with real chefs doing all this incredibly cool shit. My favorites are David Chang and Sean Brock. David Chang is this Asian Korean guy. Who started Momofuku Noodle Bar back in the early 2000s. And now he is... He's blown completely up. 
He's one of the biggest chefs in North America. He's got restaurants on every fucking coast. He's got restaurants in Toronto, you know. But he, I remember one episode, because he said the whole nuke thing. I was just like, ah. He, on one episode, made a cake in one of those little plastic cups in a microwave. It's and it's really cool. It's you put it in one of those little CO two canisters. You know the CO two you do fucking whip. It's with when yep. we were younger, <laughs> um, and you put all the ingredients of a cake into it, mix it all together, and you would pipe it into this little plastic cup that you put a couple holes in the bottom, pop it in the microwave. Four minutes later, you got this cool little cylindrical cake. It's a cake. It's fully cooked, fully baked, texture and everything. Hmm. And then what they would do, because, you know, he was doing a little bit higher-end food, is he br- would break it up into pieces, the whole deconstructive um, trend, if you will, that people are really on nowadays. And he made this dessert out of it, and it looked phenomenal, and it was with a microwaved cake. So at the end of the day, like, microwaves have its purpose. In some restaurants. It just depends on what you use As in, I want it now. And that's, (laughs) yeah, yeah, right? Like, they're more prevalent probably in the 200C places like we talked about. Like, microwaving veg. Yeah, right? Like, you sprinkle garlic butter on it, you microwave it, dump it on the plate. That's their, that's your side of veg, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm against that, that's for sure. (laughs) But yeah, like, the smaller rooms, you can slow it down, you can take your time, and you can legitimately cook right there's different things you can do with every equipment out there like a lot of people they look at something like a uh, paco jet and i don't know if you've ever heard of a paco jet before nope so they've been around since i want to say late 80s early 90s they're extremely fucking expensive they're swiss made it's basically a high-powered high-end food blender but in most restaurant circles people go oh that's your super expensive ice cream maker and sorbet maker because that's one of the primary things people use them for because you can make your ice cream base, pour it into the beaker, freeze it, and then you just pop it in there. You don't have to churn it for an oh, hour, okay. 45 minutes. It goes done. Easy mode. And you have the smoothest smoothest ice cream you're ever going to get but it has so many other uses and options and things like that but yeah it's expensive it's not cheap it's like eight grand to get one most restaurants don't have that budget i was gonna say not many people are buying that to make ice cream at home then oh god no if i had that kind of money to buy that i'm uh I've got a lot of money to spend. Yeah. Do you think people would kick microwaves more often if convection ovens were more prevalent? Yes. I'm seeing a lot more of those tabletop convection ovens now, and I actually think they're a good thing, personally. Like, someone like myself who grew up with a toaster oven, grandma had one, my parents have one. When my I, office has one. <laughs> when, I first moved, when I first moved out, I had one. Um, the, the, the tabletop convection ovens, you know, nowadays they're only a couple hundred bucks, like two... Maybe 300 bucks. But you know what? They're good. They're very useful. They're very efficient. Both in cooking, timing, and energy use. They're very, uh, very efficient machines nowadays. A lot of stride has been taken on a lot of that kind of stuff. I really think people should 
invest in one if you can if you can afford one and will use it enough yeah and it could like who like there's always these trends right like the slow cooker kind of came out of nowhere and it just was like everyone was slow cooking and making crock pot meals and stuff like that and it's just you never know when one technological item is going to be like shit why we haven't been using this for i've got lots of toys at home i've like personally i guess i'm a chef so i'm a little different but like at home I've got my own meat grinder. I've got my own sausage stuffer. I've got hand blenders and blenders you'd have in restaurants and stuff like that. But if you're an avid home cook, I really find that they are they're good investments to have. I've got a friend who is a nurse, but he's a huge foodie. The man the man makes food that I want to go over to his house and eat. Oh nice. And he's got all these toys. There are days where I, I've gone over to his place and I'm like, oh, I want one of those. <laughs> but, yeah, I think by all means, if you're an avid home cook, invest, invest in things. It's just going to make things so much more enjoyable. Do you think it'll come back around to that? Because right now I feel like we're in the middle of like, like, America's America, right? So it's going to be fast food revolution down there constantly, right? But do you feel like there's a movement where people are going to be making more at home? or I'd like to see it. I personally hope and believe that it will get back to that because, yeah, we see it even myself. I'm a chef. I work ridiculous hours. I work more uh, more in one week than most people work in two. I, I never have time to eat. My day off is usually spent sleeping. And meal prepping for the week because it is more expensive to eat out. You know, you get off after work. Oh, I'm hungry. I don't have anything at home. I'm going to go to Subway or BK or whatever trashy fast food place. When, you know, you take take a couple hours, make something for the next five or six days. That all you have to do is throw it in a saute pan or throw it in the oven. Or if you want to throw it in the microwave. But you got something that costs less, tastes better, and is better for you. And I really pe- think people need to invest the time. That's a lot of people. People go, oh, I don't have the time to do this. I don't have the time to do this. You need to make the time. You need to make the time. Because it is just better. At the end, even if you're a shit cook, buy a packaged sauce... Add it to the chicken or the beef steak or something or the veg. Or take a cooking class. There's so many chefs that offer cooking classes nowadays. And they'll teach you. A lot of chefs, they're more than happy. I love educating people on things. You ask me, oh, how do I do that? I'm going to tell you exactly how to make it. I'm not going to hold back any secrets because I want people to A, appreciate. Because when you make it yourself, you appreciate both what you made and appreciate the people that do it for a living there's an appreciation factor and b i just want people to eat better i really hate fast food at the end of the day i really do i eat it because of convenience because of the amount of time i spend actually working for other people but like mcdonald's and kfc and all that i i can't stand it no, oh, as a chef, that totally makes sense. Yeah, 
Um, the last thing, I have a whole board of stuff here, but the one I kind of <laughs> want to talk to, since you've worked at so many places and I've worked at so many, um, um, what do you feel leads to the downfall of an independent place then? Because mm. I know the franchise is like, say a guy owns eight BPs, if one's failing, money siphons in from the others and it'll get it through either hard times yeah. until they can write the ship. Um, or like you don't see many fail right yeah and it's just i've watched a few fail and i've always kind of i've never been there when a place shuts right and so i have so for me i was the i started out as the sous chef at malt city um and then eventually became the head chef when the head chef left to open his own restaurants and it's very much a case study in what to do, what not to do, and that fine, very, very fine line on those two things. Because it, number one, it comes down to your location. It really, really does. Because you look at the downtown area of Regina and there's so many restaurants. And the majority of them are good. Even and the 10 small, years ago there wasn't. There's nothing. Flip, flip eatery and drink really, Flip and Crave really helped start that. Because I think when Flip was open and Crave now, they they were the best best restaurants at the time. Um, so in Malt City, we were on, across the street from the Cornwall Center. On the corner of Cornwall and 11th. So you're thinking, ooh, that's such a great location. But the reality is, come nighttime, it's deserted. And that's because of mental blocks in a lot of people people who work downtown live in the suburbs they don't want to come back downtown or they don't even want to stay because they're staying after work exactly and it's a mentality thing of oh well there's no parking i'm like bullshit there is a fucking parkade across the street with a big banner that says two dollars after five o'clock i thought they ended up being free friday nights and all saturdays too I think so, yeah. And all you literally have to do is park in that, walk across the street, and you're in the restaurants. And if you can't do that, I'm sorry, you're lazy. If I'm going out to a good restaurant and I know it's good, I don't care if I have to walk three fucking blocks. I don't care. Because I'm going to go somewhere that's good and worth going to rather than going to, say, a franchise. So in Malt City, part of it just started with location. But it was so beautiful. Oh, that building was so gorgeous. The 20-foot windows, the tall ceiling with the heritage ceiling. And, you know, it was a 100-year-old building. Never was a restaurant there, too. We had to do so much work to put I can't it. even remember what was in there before, but I remember the... The signs like coming in. Um, it was a clothing store at one point. I think it was an insurance company at some point, but originally it was a bank. Oh, like cool. where our walk-in cooler, where we stored everything, was was originally the vault. Like I remember <laughs> during construction, them with these big pulleys and chains taking apart the vault piece by piece because the actual walls of the vaults were so ridiculously heavy. Um, so we opened. We had good food. I thought it was good food. It was a little too much of a big menu. As we went from Flipper, we had a smaller menu. Same owners. Um, And they wanted to really offer a bit more. 
And what we were trying to do was invoke a lot of uh, memories of small town prairie dining where you go into that small town and there's that Chinese food place that has everything or there's that restaurant that just does this and that. So we had dishes that were really tried to evoke those memories. And Dave Straub, my chef at the time, was... uh, He's from a small town, he's from Pence, and he's very much about trying to evoke emotions and memory in his food. A lot of people didn't quite get it at first. You know, we were a whiskey bar as well, so we had, you know, up to, at one point, 70 different kinds of whiskey and scotch. You're not going to get that selection anywhere in John. If you're a whiskey, bourbon, scotch fan, you got to come to us. But a lot of people didn't quite get the concept we were going for and that really comes down to you really need to be definitive about it and in Regina especially um, you got to have your concept and you got to be able to sell that concept to people and people need to be under uh, able to understand and so for us it was uh, it was a lot of just trying to find that niche where we belonged culinarily wise and you know, unfortunately, the menu changed a few too many times in the first year, and people each time it got a, a little bit further away from what we originally opened. So people were going, "Okay, well, what are you guys?" Was that induced by panic because it was slower? Like, let's change the menu. People aren't coming. Oh, let's change the menu. That didn't work. Uh, yes and no. Some of it, for sure, I would I would assume would be, but a lot of it was uh, we were just finding our voice. It was we opened. We had our idea. Some of the dishes were not 100% there. A lot of them were. But it was, as you move along, you kind of find what works and what doesn't. And you're you're finding your voice. A lot, the hard part with restaurants nowadays is it's expected that you have your concept, your food culture, and everything as soon as you're opened. It's in the old days, it was you opened, you had a couple of months to figure out what worked, what didn't work, what your what your voice was, what your style was. You know, you could say, oh, I'm going to be Italian or, oh, I'm going to be French. But that that that's such broad term. There's so many different styles and everything. You really need to find your voice. And unfortunately for us, we were doing what you did in the old school in today's world which just doesn't it doesn't work because everything's so immediate everything is so in the now in with this in with that it's you better have everything figured out like a good example is uh alinea one of the best restaurants in the world in chicago the on the first night they open and I have to say they're the most experiment, one of the most experimental restaurants in the world. They're big on the molecular molecular gastronomy, the deconstructive, the very out there cuisine, very out there. Their first night of opening, they had some of the most influential restaurant critics and writers in the entire world on night one. No so it's you better have your shit completely together on the first fucking day you're opened. Or you're going to get completely ripped apart mm-hmm. and your reputation and everything is done. And that's the problem with today's today's day and age with restaurants is you ha- you do not get that time to find your voice. And I think with Malt City, that really is what happened to us. We didn't get 
that time to find our voice. The location wasn't the most ideal. And, well, let's face it, a few months after we opened, the res- we hit another rece- recession. There was no government money anymore. So everybody was tightening up the wallets. Nobody was really spending money. And you saw it. No, that's true. And I, I get the whole, like, we're government town. And so... Yeah. For the longest time, what was the place next to oh, downtown? There was just that Italian restaurant. Um, oh, um, Taste of Tuscany. Yeah, right? Yeah. There was that, and there was um, like O'Hanlon's, and then the place next to them. And that was kind of like, yep. other than a food court and a mall, that was where you... There might, I think there was like a Western pizza somewhere, right? Still and, is there. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was across from... Across Mark. the street. <laughs> um, but, yeah, all of a sudden I noticed there was this bold move, and it's like, I keep, and I don't know the timing of it, but Flip, Vicks, Capital, Malt, um, all opened up, and they were these independent goes at it, right? Yep. And it's it's not easy when you have everyone that, like, at 448, they're tidying their desk up to fucking race to their car to get the heck out of downtown right Mm -hmm. and it's not a fun downtown to navigate and it is like you said there is laziness tied into it too right very much like the best food in the world could be in downtown regina and most people are going to be like "Eh, but it's cold out right and so i get it it's just i've always kind of yeah they were gambles but how many of them are still around right like i think vix is doing super well the brown or uh, not browns um capital yeah, it still seems to be going really well. I keep meaning to poke in there. Yeah, they've kind of strayed away from their original uh, tapas bar concept, but they're still going. And you know, it's a great place to get a decent cocktail. That's for sure. Nice. And they still do the live music, which is nice. Oh, cool. Um, and then there's some long-standing ones. Like I feel like Labodega's got to be 25 years old, right? Yeah, but Bodega, but it's a different Bodega's such a different story, though. Um, so and we can get we can get in the history of La Bodega, but it's not even La Bodega anymore. Now it's Bodega. Yeah, it's repackaged. It it is. It's in the the early two thousands. It was such a good restaurant. It was up there with the Willow and all those restaurants trying to do really good cuisine. Uh, they were very much one of the original tapas places, and I used to love going there when I worked at uh, Moxie's. I think you actually. Yeah, it was like you, Scott, myself. I had worked there at one point when it was the original owner, yeah. the chef Adam, right? Yep. And now he's got his alcohol company flying, and I think he dropped all... Yeah, I I don't even think he owns the building anymore at this point. Um, but then it just it transferred ownership a few times. It really got away from what it was. The product wasn't as good. And then the menu became super dated to the point where I'd look at it and go, oh... You're still doing the Brie Plank. I could go to a grocery store like Safeway and buy everything I need for that right now. Like, why do I want to come in and spend $25 on that? And it, yeah. And I remember when it opened, it was trendy. It was cutting edge. Yeah. Um, they had some of their signature things. Like they had a mushroom strudel that was around forever. That was amazing. <laughs> that's um, been, that's been mimicked so many times over the years. Right. But they had like, but I think he took the effort to find cool things from oh. like other places around. The duck confit empanadas were one of my favorites. 
they were so fucking good in the lamb enchiladas. You know, you took the concept of an enchilada and you introduced lamb, which you don't normally see. Or you took the idea of an empanada and you put stuffed it with duck confit. You know, you took uh, South American cuisine and you added a French element to it. And it was fantastic. Yeah. And I think at that time, like I have some friends that work there that were also great chefs. Right. And I think when you're that type of place, like people are noticing you, other chefs will notice you and then you get a really good crew. Right. Yeah. And like you said, I think management changed, ownership changed. I think Adam's uh, focus changed as he had kids sure. and then um he wanted to get into the alcohol business and start brewing and yeah, the spurling silver yeah and so like it's still there i know it's not what it used to be but it's re- and it's been repackaged but like it's still around in yeah. theory right like for for me now it's become very much more of this uh this place that tries to be trendy the food is kind of what it is it's not very anything it's fine it's not bad i'm not saying it's not bad but it's not it's not pulling in people going oh wow i need to go there for this and now it's they're trying to attract a lot of that trendy crowd and trying to attract the trendy crowd is in my opinion the worst thing to do because they're the chasers and when i say chaser i mean they chase restaurant openings they go there, they go to the new place. Oh, yeah, look at this place. It's so cool. It's so hip. It's so trendy. You're there for a month, and then you're on to the next thing. Yeah. And then that place is sitting there going, we're, we're busy like hell. Where is everybody now? And it's because it's you're, you're not creating a long-term sustainable product. You're creating something that is attaching itself to trends. You know, when I go into a restaurant and every single Friday night is a live DJ or every single Saturday night is hip-hop night or hookah night or crap like that, it's it's not sustainable in my opinion. I don't want to go into a restaurant and listen to a DJ blasting music and scratching records. I want to go into a restaurant for an actual ambiance and have a good drink, a glass of wine or a good beer or a cocktail and some food. Entertainment is great. Like you go to the Capitol and you've got bands like Terraplane that play this real nice, um, not to sound old, but groovy, jazzy type feel. That kind of music you can have supper to. That kind of music you can sit back and listen to and enjoy because it's geared towards a dining scene. Hip-hop and DJs, I'm sorry, they have their place in the world, but not in a restaurant. The after party. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't work. I don't want to sit there and try and eat my food and listen to a DJ playing rap music. No, that's true. Um I have a theory, and you're the perfect one to shoot it down or not. Okay. Um, and it's always been in my head when it happens in town here, is I've always said never open a restaurant in a failed location. Disagree. Um, there's always been that common myth, especially if you've read, say, uh, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, which is one of the most influential books of uh, the early 2000s. He said in there that... Failure lingers long after a place closes to the point where you will see a space where five or six restaurants will come and fail. I disagree with that. And the perfect example would be Leopold. 
the original Leopold. So in that space, in my time cooking, so 15, 17 years, I've seen at least six businesses in there. I remember there was a pizza place. Passionate Pizza, which was a Sperling thing. Yep. There was Mojo. Right. There was the Fainting Goat, which was two iterations of the Fainting Goat. There was the original owner who did, she did a fantastic job and then sold it. The guy closed it down for a bit and then reopened it. And that failed hard. And I think there were a few other places before that I can't remember. But then you... It, they never really lasted longer than two, three years. Now you see Leopold's. That was the first one. Yeah. That's the OG. The whole... They latched on to... They saw, they saw the trend of dive bars, pubs. People really wanting that more relaxed, crowded environment. Let's go have some beers, bunch of crap on the wall, watch some sports. The intimate... I feel like... It, I call it like the intimate Euro pub feel, but yeah, yeah like there's That's a record decent way of saying it. There's record covers all over the walls, and exactly. it is smaller. There's like soccer jerseys on the like. They opened up, and for the first year, that was the industry hangout place. Everyone who worked downtown, when they got off work, boom. We're going to Leo's because we're going to meet up with every cook and server and chef that we know because we know they're all there. And we're all friends and we all hang out and we drink. And it was just fantastic because they stayed open late, later than most of us were open. So we always knew we had a place to go, which in my industry, we all want that late night place that's open to like 3 or 4 in the morning that's going to serve me kick-ass food, be it a noodle bowl or... Fucking whatever and beer in a jukebox. None of us are going to open that because we don't want to work that goddamn late. But yeah, so Leopold's was that for us when it first opened, and then in all the the locals in the area, people at Cathedral and downtown started to go, "Oh wow, this place is busy all the time," because well, us chefs were getting drunk as shit in there. Um, <laughs> and then they really started to move in on it, and they attracted some very rich. Very wealthy investors, uh, the Drummond family, who they, they've they got a ton of money. And they started to expand it. So they opened the East location. Then they opened Victoria's. Then they opened... Uh, There's a North. They opened in Saskatoon. Then they opened the North one. And now it's, it's blown up. It's this huge franchise to the point where they're now opening a location in Victoria. All the way in Victoria, B.C. They're opening a Leopold's right now. So it's it depends on what you do with the space. Back to your earlier comment about failure lingering in restaurants. I don't think a space can stay a failure so long as you have the right concept. You can run it smoothly like a business because that's a lot of problem with a lot of independence. It's, it's, a, it's a passion project. And they have a great product, they have a great thing, but they they can't run it like a business properly. And that's that's the balance you need to have with the independence. You need to be able to operate it like a business, but still put out that passion and that creativity. So, I yeah, once again, it comes down to, sure, that space has failed before, but what did they do wrong? Yeah. What went wrong there? I don't think a place can stay poisonous forever. Yeah, it just I always feel and that is a great counterpoint that I never thought of. Right. I just feel like 
other examples of it it's just like say the old 2044 that became pure ultra lounge <laughs> that became bobby's old world tavern and yeah. now there's video gaming and ballers games. ballers right and that is what sticks in my head right and i now, yeah i personally don't see that one lasting because i've been there and it's not bad i like the badging cages there but it's like when i think of a place an idea in a place like that i think of so much more gaming wise yeah. I can run through all those games in an hour. And then I'm like, okay, I'm bored. I don't want to spend any more money here. I'm out. Yeah. Cool. I want to pick your brain. Closing question. Yeah. If someone with a lot of money came up and said that you could put anything you wanted for a restaurant into the South Brewster's location that's been sitting there empty now for a while, Oof. what would you put in there? Oh, that's a tough one because it's such a big location, so you really have to watch what you do. I was sad when they ripped the brewery out of it. Yeah. Um, Brewster's is another concept, another one of those examples of a place that was big when it was and just didn't change enough with the times. Um, they Every beer that they ever made that was good, they got rid of. <laughs> like, I love the Shaughnessy Stout. That was a good beer for them. But they stopped making it. Um, did they? Yeah, they did. I was the South Brewmaster for a year. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And I despised making blueberry wheat. Yeah, That was gross. Because uh, once you learn that it's a syrup that you pour into beer. Yeah. It's, it's nothing fresh or anything. Yeah, right? Yeah. There's no berries in it. It's just no. flavoring, right? But yeah, like I was uh, like, um, the stout was really good and they're brown. I loved it. And yeah. the, the fact that for like a year I was making beer was a super fun kind of left turn in my career right if i did if i were to do something with that space to be honest i would actually attempt to do a proper and i I hate using the word proper because what does that actually mean but i would do a really nice italian restaurant because i feel that's something we don't have in regina like when you think italian what's the first thing comes to your mind what's the one on north albert that's a luigi's yeah that would be about it. Yeah. There used to be a kick-ass one downtown Regina. Yep. Taste the Tuscany. It um, was delicious. There was another one too. What the hell was it called? And then it had like a jazz place in the basement. But this was like early 90s. Oh God, I wouldn't even So yeah, remember. you would know. But like, but there were other locations, right? Yeah. Um, our former mayor tried one. I think it's gone, right? Oh yeah, it's been gone for a long time ago. That one was uh, a giant pile of fucking hubris right there. That was... <laughs> <laughs> well, and the other part was when he opened it, Sofiaco was a partner and it, he was just going to be more like the host rather than like general manager or anything. But then he got the job at SAS Tourism and it was like, all right, see you guys later, I'm out. And the food was so overpriced. Like to me, Italian food is approachable, comforting, big bowls that you share with the table, um, lots of pasta because pasta is one of my favorite things in the world to make and it needs to be affordable so like with that space i would attempt to do something like that an italian restaurant where the emphasis is on big bowls of sharing food be it pasta or salad or you know a really nice roast chicken nothing too fancy but you don't need to be fancy to deliver a good product you know i'd be making all my own pasta I would employ a person just to roll out and cut pasta. I would buy a, you know, a five thousand dollar machine to extrude 
the different kinds of pasta shape that you can't really make by hand, like uh, penne or um, rigatoni or stuff like that. That's what I would do, because personally, I would love nothing more than to open a really nice Italian restaurant. In that kind of a setting, that's a little bigger than what I would want to do. So I'd have to really kind of uh, streamline the product and have a bigger menu. But uh, for me, like my ideal scenario is a little 35 seater Italian restaurant. So that's, yeah, that's way too big of a space because it used to be like. For sure. Pub and then dining, like a pub and a dining room split. Yeah. Um, and then they threw some, oh, they threw out their off sale and added a team room. And then that leads into crashing kitchens, bad service in my mind. Oh, right? for sure. But no, that's a cool thing. And it's like when you say Italian. All there really is, and like, no offense to BPs because it was one of my favorite places, but that is like bastardized Italian food, right? Like, so is Luigi's at the end of the day. Nothing against them. They've been around for 25, 30 years, but. Or Eastside Mario's. Like, they're yeah, all. I walk in and I look at those menus and they say a classical word like carbonara. And then I read it and I'm like, well, no, it's cream, bacon, and mushrooms. That's not carbonara. Carbonara is pancetta sautéed, maybe with some garlic if you want. And then you're adding Parmesan, pasta, and egg yolk. And you are tossing that to create an emulsified sauce and then topping it off with Parmesan. That's carbonara. There's no cream in carbonara. It has never in the history of carbonara existed. So I see these Italian quote-unquote restaurants as I'm doing the finger thing. <laughs> but even Western... like. Yeah, I don't know if it's just Saskatchewan or what, but it, we have we have this faux Italian. Like we love our pizzas, we love our pastas, we love our lasagnas yeah, and stuff like that. But we love our faux Greek and our faux Italian. Yeah, the Greek move too. Yeah, oh, the Greeks own so much. <laughs> but in in Regina, especially because Saskatoon has a much bigger food movement than we do, I love going up to Saskatoon and eating. There's so many good restaurants. But here in Regina, it's we're so attached to the the faux Greek and the faux Italian restaurants that aren't really serving you a real a real product. It, I hate to use the word authentic because unless you're getting it from the actual place it was created, it's never going to be authentic. You're creating your version of that authentic dish. But don't bastardize it. Don't take what a dish means and turn it into something else. That is the biggest thing that pisses me off in restaurants. When you say, you know, once again, back to the carbonara thing, and it's cream and bacon and mushrooms. That's not fucking carbonara. And no goddamn place in the world is that carbonara. Yeah, but even with my extensive industry, like, I worked in it for over 10 years. See, I didn't know that till you said. Yeah. Because every place I worked at, it's like, well, take your Alfredo, throw a little bacon on it, and da-da. Yeah, carbonara. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's egg yolk, pancetta, or guanciale. Guanciale is the cured uh, pork jowl. It's one of my favorites, personally. Um, pancetta is more widely known. Uh, so it's pancetta, pasta, egg yolk, parmesan. Maybe a little bit of pasta water in there to make sure that egg doesn't scramble and to scramble eggs on you. That's kind of a little industry trick. <laughs> um, but that's what it is. That's carbonara. And then you add some cracked black pepper and some uh, parmesan on top or Romano cheese. And that's carbonara. 
whole they're the whole cream mushroom and bacon thing that's just it's just what sells it's not re it's not real italian food it's it's not even italian american to be honest with you and when i say american i mean italian american i mean north american not necessarily the u.s yeah yeah some people nowadays seem to get a little bit bitchy about that i don't know fuck no and thanks for popping out i hit a lot of the things i wanted to talk to you about and it was perfect right um because it's just it's nice to talk to someone who's gone through the chef thing and i remember when i saw that you were doing butchering right like that just looked like a very kind of cool thing right like yeah i was doing it with uh reed's artisanal butcher and that was really cool because all of our meat was small farms local like he'd drive hour and a half out of town to go pick up the meat drive an hour and a half back and then we'd butcher it and it was all whole animal butcher too so you were seeing different cuts of beef that you don't normally see you know your skirt steaks your flank steaks your hangers your bovets all these type of old school european cuts that because meat is so much more readily available in north america you don't see it because that stuff could just just gets turned into ground beef and it's such a travesty like my favorite steaks are those those cuts because they're a little chewier because the muscle's been worked more and there's more flavor and people don't like we talked in the first five minutes people don't see that they want yep. they want tender and chewable <laughs> <laughs> and they don't care if it tastes because there'll be a sauce slathered on it yep, right there'll so. be some kind of peppercorn cream sauce on it yeah to hide it all yep <laughs> or to like guess add something to it right yeah no thank you i appreciate it this is a yeah, good chat thanks for having me